The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 104.5 FM, 103.5 FM HD 2, 103.9 FM HD 2, and 107.7 FM HD 2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. And it's been a busy week in technology. Lots of stuff going on. The police are using facial recognition to identify protesters who did damage. And the ISS astronauts, that's the International Space Station astronauts, voted from space. They had their own voting booth up there. And the Chinese control of companies is real. There's going to be an IPO coming out from the Ant Group. That's the Alibaba group, and uh, it was blocked because um, the owner of the ant group did not want to kowtow to the Chinese government. So their controls are real. We'll, we'll talk a bit about that. And it's the 13th birthday of the Android phone, and we'll, I think we'll have time to get to the coronavirus update. We now have got a mink permutation. So it's I heard. Like, this is strange. Can't wait to hear your explanation. It's very strange on that mink permutation. And we're going to feature today A.J. Bott. He's the man who came up with the universal serial port, universal serial bus, USB. We use that to hook all kinds of devices to our computer. And, of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. Yes, we got an email from Lily in Fairfax. Dear Tech Talk, I've recently been taking a lot of digital photos. Is there a way to rename all the files in a certain folder to a common base name? My camera always names the pictures with the same base name and then just adds a number at the end. Like I would like to say... Like IMG um, something, right? Lily's birthday party, 001. Lily's birthday party, 002. Name them like that. But it takes so much time to individually name every follows or a quick way to do that. Well, Lily, um, there are several ways to rename files in bulk in Windows 10, but but the tools that they give you are kind of difficult to use and the results are not really that great. I think there you should use a, a free utility called the bulk rename utility, the bulk rename utility. It makes, it makes it easy to change a file name of every file in a folder. I mean, you can pick the base name, and it will automatically append the number to it automatically. Now, you want to download this free uh, application from oldergeeks.com. I've talked about this site, oldergeeks.com. These guys go in, and they make certain that there's no malware embedded in that free program. That's a problem when you just download applications from anywhere. They double check it. It's clean. Now, if you want to, 
you can make a little PayPal donation to olderdeeks.com because they're actually doing a real service to it. I've given the link to the website, but you can just go to the oldergeeks.com website and you can search for bulk rename utility. And I that will that will solve your problem, Lily. We got an email from Michael in St. Louis. Dear Doc and Jim, I got a new iPhone and it's and I've still got many old chargers laying around the house. Does it matter which charger I use for my new phone? Can, uh, how can I really tell what the specs are on a charger, Michael in St. Louis? Well, Michael, this is a complicated problem uh, because people do have chargers everywhere. The most common spec you're going to see on a charger is the watts, how many watts it will put out. And, um, and uh, how quickly your phone charges depends on how many watts your charger can provide. For instance, the iPhone 12 can handle up to 20 watts. So if you have a 20-watt charger, it's going to charge up to 20 watts. If you have a 30-watt charger, it's only going to charge to 20 watts. It, it tells you what the maximum is. So what you want to do is look at the maximum charge capacity of your phone and get a, a charger to match it. For instance, if you on your iPhone 12, if you would use the old chargers for the iPhones, which uh, only were 5-watt chargers, it would take you four times as long to charge up your iPhone 12. So... I try to match what you've got. Now, there's one other issue. The, um, all of the vendors have come up with something called fast charging. It's like a proprietary protocol that charges very fast. So, for instance, the OnePlus 8T phone has a 65-watt fast charging mode. But what it does, it splits the battery up into two halves and charges each half separately. I mean, that's sort of an internal proprietary design for that particular phone. So you cannot use the fast charging mode from another vendor. It's got to be matched to the iPhone. And if, if, you, have a, if you have a charger from another phone, um, it, just won't, it just won't use fast charging. It'll just be the normal slow charge. So those are the only issues you got to keep track of. Uh, best of luck with your uh, charger there, Michael, in St. Louis. We got an email from Doug in Pittsburgh. Dear Doc and Jim, during the pandemic, I frequently have to sign documents at home and send a PDF. Now, I've got a printer, but my printer doesn't have a scanner. Um, is there any way that I can scan my documents to PDF from home? I, I hate to have to go out and buy a printer scanner. Well, Doug, you've got some really good options here. There are some apps that you can then install on either your, your Android phone or your iPhone. Now, I use a couple of apps. One app that I like is Adobe Scan. Now, Adobe Scan, it's free. I mean, it's got, I use the free version. You can get additional features if you use the paid version. I use the free version, which is fine for me. You can scan a multiple page document. You just simply keep taking pages. And when you're done, you save it, and it will save the multiple pages to a PDF, and it will upload it to the Adobe Cloud and you'll have a link to that document. Then you can simply send the link to whatever you want and they'll get the PDF. The nice thing about it, you know, when you're trying to take a picture for a PDF, you get shadows on the phone sort of projected across the page. Well, when it converts it to a PDF, all of those shadows go away and you've got a nice clean white background on your sheets. Now there's a second one that's pretty nice, Cam Scanner, Cam Scanner. It also is a free version and a paid version. It's just as easy to use as Adobe Scan. And uh, use either one and just, just decide which one you like, which interface you like. And, 
And I think you'll have no trouble, and there's no reason to actually buy a scanner to do this job. So you'll just print out your documents with your printer, sign them, and then you'll use the scanning software on your iPhone or your uh, Android phone to create the PDF. We got an email from Tom Schum. Dear Tech Talk, Tom's a, a longtime listener. Mm -hmm. Dear Dear Doc, Jim, and Mr. Big Voice, and Hal 9000. Because we never can get rid of him. You know I know. That he, right. he he's, is, always, uh, he's always here for us. That's that's right. He is. So He is so always here for here, us. Uh, until I heard your story about you wiring, soldering house wires, I thought I was the only one who ever soldered house wires. I did that while wiring my brother-in-law's house in the 80s. But no problem so far. The, the wiring's perfect. But I went one step further than you. <laughs> I actually put a silicone seal on each connection and then capped it with a wire nut. Well, Tom, um, you know, well, Tom's talking about the fact I talked about I wired the kitchen of my house when I was nine when years nine. old and I soldered all the connections. I didn't use silicone seal, but I'll tell you, I went back to that house many years later and that kitchen is still humming away. No problem with the wiring. Did, did now, Tom went seal on to say... I'm building a radio from scratch, but it's impossible to find the little tiny RF coils and transformers that were used in most of all radios from 1920 to 1980. Now I'm back making resonators the old way, like they did in the 20s. I'm having a lot of fun, and I'll end up with a radio that's probably one of those big consoles like you have in the 20s. It's, it's a fun project. Well, uh, Tom, uh, I, you know, I looked around on eBay, and there are a lot of sellers that sell vintage radio coils on eBay. I mean, I saw one that was an assortment of almost 100 coils for $10. I'm thinking that you can be able to find what you want by going to one of those vendors on eBay, and so then you don't have to wind all these coils yourself. We got an email from Arnie hey, in Colorado Springs. Doc. Hi, Dr. Schultz. Doc. Whenever I see something uh, to do with physics, I think of you. Here's another one. Here's another article that I found. It's got a lot of computational physics it's over my head, but I thought you'd get something out of it, Arnie, in Colorado Springs. Well, Arnie, it was an interesting article. The point that he was making in the article, he was basically calculating how a spring, how a weight on a spring vibrates up and down, how it oscillates up and down. And it was a simple calculation using Newton's law of motion and the uh, law of the spring, that the force of the spring is proportional to the, the, to the displacement. It was very simple. The point he was making was that being able to analyze the equations is very useful, and simply using computation, computer computation to get an answer doesn't necessarily give you the insight. So he was trying to show how going through the equations can give you insight on how this particular uh, physical system works. And it was, was an interesting article. It was written for, uh, you know, for students, but I think he made a, an excellent point. Too often, we just jump to the computer and do the calculation, and then we don't really understand what's going on. We got an email from Bob in Maryland. Dear Doc, Jim, and the effusive Mr. Big Voice. Effusive. Effusive, yes. Can while uh, while while I'm uh, while uh, while I'm in my lockdown, I've been internet surfing, and I came across this article called "Spooky Similarity Between Brains and Computers: How Neuro Natural and Artificial Intelligence Network Process 3D Fragments of Visual Images the Same Way. AI systems do things differently than humans do it. Yet, here's an example." of where our AI system is emulating what the, what the human body's been doing. 
Well, this was an interesting article, Bob. I, I really did enjoy reading it. It shows how artificial neural networks... Now, now they named their artificial neural networks AlexNet, AlexNet. And it performs early detection of 3D shapes to aid in the recognition of 3D objects. Then they did experiments on the human brain, and the area V4 of the human brain actually does the same kind of analysis. It looks at 3D, 2D shapes as a precursor of recognizing 3D objects. And they found this spooky correspondence between the brain and the evolution of real-time learning in the brain. Well, actually, it's not too surprising. Nature develops uh, solutions to problems under constraints. And nearly every invention that man has come, come up with has evolved somewhere in nature. Like, you know, I was studying mollusks, and, um, you know, mollusks, uh, uh, they, they have their, their seafood is a certain color, so they develop quarter-wave filters that, that filter out everything except the color of their food so they can pick it up very easily. There were other mollusks that had to have eyes underwater, and they developed self-focusing optics that would that would actually, the index of reflection would change as the, uh, as the square of the distance from the middle, so you could actually have a lens that would focus underwater. There are triplet lenses that were developed in nature. So almost everything that we've seen has evolved under constraints within nature, and there are similar solutions. And artificial neural networks are using, trying to embody those same constraints, so it's not unreasonable that we'd end up with the same solution. I mean, in fact, I mean, many years ago, I was working on satellite imaging systems, and and we had a problem with, uh, you know, they, they would design an imaging system, and then it would have all of these pixels, and they send it back to a computer, and then you need a supercomputer to do it, because you had so many, so much information that the whole system became too expensive. So we decided to look at frogs, because <laughs> frogs were doing something very interesting. They would There would be a... Uh, an insect out there, and it would just zone in on that insect, and it would shoot out its tongue and catch that insect. That was a lot like a kinetic energy weapon, and an insect moving along in front of the frog is a lot like a missile. How could the frog do that complicated calculation, launch that kinetic energy tongue, and get it done with such a small brain and low bandwidth between the eyes? So we studied the frog, and we found out that the frog had a matched filter in the eyes. It could only see objects that were moving at the velocity of food at a certain size. So it only sent back the information relevant to the food that it was trying to seek, and it solved the bandwidth problem. So there's a lot of times when you can actually look toward nature to solve problems that we have. So it, I, I did enjoy reading that article, Bob. I, it sort of brings back the good old times when I when I used to do technology stuff. We got an email from Karen in Richmond. Dear Tech Talk, I recently got a DNA test from 23andMe. Now, the results are interesting, but now I'm worried about my privacy. Yeah. Since my DNA is public knowledge and can be used by law enforcement or other people can look it up. Mm-hmm. Is there any way I can remove this data? Or somebody might be a distant relative and they want to track me down and, and I don't necessarily want to see them. Is there yeah. any way I can remove my data from the site? Love the show, Karen, in Richmond, Virginia. Well, Karen, there are actually three of these sites, Ancestry DNA, MyHeritage, and 23andMe, and they all try to lure people to use their service as much as they can because that's how they make money. 
But all of that data is really available for anybody to use. It's not really private. The good news is that these big three testing services, Ancestry DNA, MyHeritage, and 23andMe, do have a way, all three of them have a way to delete your information from the website. And I strongly recommend that you do that. You just log on to your account, then you go to your account settings, and then within account settings, you have a choice where you can select the option to delete your data from your database. I think you should do that right away, Karen, yeah. because I don't think having your DNA out there is, is a good idea. Think about it in the future. Insurance companies may track down your DNA and decide that you have a proclivity to a certain type of disease, and they'll decide not to cover you yep. because they've seen your DNA. So I think you want to keep it private. Now, I did do a DNA on myself a long time ago, so but it I. was purely anonymous. I actually joined the National Geographic uh, Human Genome Project, Human Genographic Project. And what they did, this was really interesting. Uh, National Ge Geographic sent doctors around the world, and they went and they tested the DNA sequence from indigenous people from around the world. Uh, all over the, and these are groups of people that hadn't traveled. Uh, that and they they and they had to do this quickly because they didn't want they didn't want to have the DNA um, contaminated by people that had come in and so they went and got the DNA of indigenous populations and what they discovered then was that all these indigenous populations could be distinguished because there were permutations in the DNA that occurred over time and then if somebody would go into their system they could look at the permutations in that person's DNA and they could tell them how their ancestors went all the way back to Africa mm. from the very beginning. It was really interesting. Now, what I liked about this one and why I did this particular DNA is that you just got a number, and the number was not associated with you. And then if you'd want to look up your information, you put in this, like, you know, 12-digit number, and then you can see your results. But nobody knows who you are. It's not tagged yeah. against you. And now, if you want to put in your personal information, you can do that, but you don't have to. And I certainly, I'm not interested. And so, like I've, I discovered, my ancestors left Africa seventy thousand years ago. Wow! And then they went to Mesopotamia. Then, twenty thousand years ago, they went up to uh, they went up to Europe. I mean, it's it's really interesting to you know to to, to see how this goes. Uh, most of the Western religions migrated through Mesopotamia. That's the sort of the heart of uh, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Most of the Eastern religions, Buddhists and Hindus, migrated through the Second River Valley, which is the Hindu Indus Indus Valley over there near near India, running through running through Pakistan near uh, near Kashmir. So it's uh, it's really interesting to see that. I mean, there are also if you look at the at the broad migrations, there was a land bridge, in um, you know that went between Russia and and, and Alaska, and around twenty thousand years ago there was a migration from from India across the land bridge and down south, and that's why a lot of the indigenous people in America look like they're Indians from India uh -huh. because they were from India wow. twenty thousand years ago, huh. and there was a there was another group that crossed the land bridge from the Japan area, and they didn't migrate further south. They just stayed in, in Alaska, and that's why Eskimos look like they're Japanese. So 
but these migrations are really interesting. And, you know, we teach this at Stratford, actually, because what, what this taught me is that we are more alike than we're different. Our DNAs are almost identical. We all originated from the same cauldron, mm -hmm. and then we just migrated around the world. And so I think the more that we can teach our common heritage, that we're more alike as humans, then we're different because of our face or our skin color. I think the world is a better place. So, so we teach this a lot at Stratford, and I think it's an important lesson during these times of division and strife. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, and 1077 FM HD2, southwest of Washington. In Loudoun County, you can hear us on 104.5 FM. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature AJV Bot. B-H-A-T-T. A.J. Bott developed a number of technologies which we all use, like the USB port, universal serial bus. He developed the accelerated graphics port, which is used for all of our computers now for processing graphics quickly. He developed the PCI Express, which is a standard bus architecture for PCs. He worked on platform power management, but he's best known as one of Intel's rock stars. Now, A.J. Bott was born in India in 1957. Now, he grew up in a, and basically, he was a technically-minded child, but he was in a family of liberal arts professionals. So he was the go-to guy for any computer problem. So he fixed radios, he fixed televisions, he fixed circuit breakers. He was always fixing stuff for the rest of the family. Now, in 1980, he received the Bachelor of Science in Electrical, Electrical Engineering from the Maharaja Sarajevo University. 
Now, his interest in electronics, which is what he was always uh, interested in from early childhood, prompted him to leave India and study at the City University in New York City. And there, while he was at the City University, he developed video technology uh, that was used aboard the Columbia Space Shuttle. He got, I guess he got a student internship job and started working on that space shuttle contract. In 1984, he got a Master of Science from the City University in New York. And he was hired right after he graduated as a principal engineer at Wang Laboratories. And he was the, uh, he led the system architecture definition for the Motorola 680 XO based workstation product line. So he was right away working on system specs. In 1990, that was after six years, he was hired by Intel as a senior staffed architect. Now, AJ led a team of engineers in defining the architecture for the Energy Star compliant green desktops. He was developing the standards for power management. Now, he was a key technical contributor to the plug and play architecture. This, this is, uh, you know, it used to be when you'd put a new, um, new board in your computer, you'd have to toggle all the switches to, you know, to, to configure it. But with plug and play, it's auto configured. And he developed auto configuring with this plug and play. It's really, it really is very interesting. Like I've got it, I've got a device, uh, a Tableau device that I use for my over-the-air streaming of uh, streaming of over-the-air television, and I can and I can basically go through the router and I can send that signal anywhere I want, and that is the ports. Or I don't have to configure the ports. It's done with plug and play. So that that all dates right back to him. Now in 1991, AJ's wife wanted to print some letters for their daughter's school project. Now she, you know, back in those days, it was hard to get a printer to work. You know, remember we didn't, we we had we had uh, serial ports, we had parallel ports. You had to get special device drivers. The device drivers had to match the operating system. I mean, it was a whole big technical prog process. You, you you basically needed IT support to configure the printer. Well, his wife worked and worked, and she couldn't get the thing done. So he went and started helping her get this thing set up and installed the device printers, got the right cables, got the right connectors. It was a project. And that's when he decided there had to be a better way. Why, why should you have to do all this configuration just to hook a printer up to a computer? So that motivated him to start looking for a solution. Now, and he got an idea. He wanted to come up with a universal plug. And uh, and he wanted to sort of, I mean, just like the wall outlet, you know. Yeah. The wall outlet's a standard configuration, and anything plugs into it. You you, you get something that's one ten power. You plug it into that outlet, it always works. It's always configured right. That's a, so he said, I want something like a wall plug for hooking up printers. That was his motivation. So he proposed this to uh, to Intel, and he became the chief architect for the development of this technology. Now. Initially, uh, initially, Intel called it the hierarchical serial bus assembly. Now That's a bit complicated. That's just not a good marketing name. No. Hierarchical serial bus assembly. And uh, 
uh, he's and AJ said, you know, you know, I love you guys here at Intel, but we need a better name. Uh, so they came up with the Universal Serial Bus, USB, mm-hmm. and now that stuck. So we got the USB, and he became chief architect for the USB development. He conceived of the idea, and then he drove it home. Now. This is how it would work. When you plug in a USB peripheral device to a computer, the first thing the computer does, it assigns, the hub assigns a number to that device, the USB hub. It says, okay, your device number three. And then it communicates with the device to see what kind of information it has to send back and forth. And it sets up a protocol that will set up a communication path for that particular device. It figures it all out, talks to it. And when it talks to the computer, it translates it into whatever language the computer wants to have. So it's basically a translator. Now, the hub decides what kind of services that are needed, sets up the what they call the connection, the data transfer. They call them stream pipes. And then it cycles through all the different devices, and it gives them a little piece of time, you know, to, to, send, their, to send their data through their stream. And it can handle up to 127 devices, just cycles through the devices. So the person who just plugs it into the USB port, I mean, it could be a printer, it could be a modem, it could be a microphone like I've got here. And the USB just figures out what it needs and gives it to him. And then the the person doesn't have to do anything, it configures itself. So that was the basic idea. Now, in order for this to work, you had to have companies accept it. So he led a standards group, and they had to get other companies in the group. So they was, and this is how the IT industry works. You get together, you have a standards group. So he got together with Compaq, with IBM, with Nortel, with Microsoft, with Intel, of course was in it. The NEC was in it and DEC was in it, DEC, digital equipment. And, and they came up with the original specs. And in 1995, they released the USB 1.0. Now, Intel had all the patents on the uh, USB. And it doesn't work if you try to charge royalties. So they, this working group set up a patent pool, and anybody who follows the standard and follows the sort of the marketing requirements of the group can use the patents without paying any royalties. This is also a key feature on how we have achieved uniformity across IT equipment through these patent pools. Now, so as you would expect, because um, Intel owned the patent and they put it in the patent pool, AJ didn't make a penny out of this. <laughs> right. <deal. laughs> he didn't Usually make the same, case. He, he didn't make a dime out of the deal. Now, in 1996, he became senior principal engineer at Intel, and then he moved on to other things. He moved on to platform architecture. He, then he became the chief input-output architect and an Intel fellow. He became, he became the a lead for the PCI Express. This is a bus where you can plug cards into a computer. He was in, instrumental in developing all of the versions of PCI Express through version 3. And he also led and uh, pushed, the, pushed the specifications through a special interest group which is where a group of industry people that, that pull their patents. And he continues to be the, the primary spokesperson for PCI. In 2008, he became the chief architect uh, for the uh, client computing group. 
and he came up with the client computing architecture. He's primarily focused on advances in platform architecture, and he works with internal and external partners to develop those standards. Now, he became a global celebrity because of his work on the USB, as co-inventor of the USB, and he was featured in a TV ad as an Intel rock star. And you see this guy walking in and all of the women and the men uh, who are programmers that just swoon over this guy. It's an hilarious ad. And Intel was running these rock star ads for a while to, you know, to give some credit to their, to their real, um, you know, to, to the real developers of their technology. He even appeared on the Conan O'Brien show. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, you, and you should have seen Conan O'Brien, because obviously Intel was a sponsor. Mm -hmm, right. And he was sitting here trying to, trying to interview AJ on this USB port. Good luck with and, that. And, you know, um, you know, Conan just could not think of any jokes out there. It was like really a boring interview. It's a pretty dry <laughs> subject. Yeah, he obviously, he obviously did, not want to, uh, did not want to do it. But um, but it was it was fun to watch and and I love that rock star ad. Now in in 2010 he was in the uh, in the 2010 issue of GQ India as one of the 50 most influential Indians, uh, which was uh, which was quite a quite a good deal. In 2012 he was given the Light of India Award for his contributions in the advancement of science and technology, and he got. Uh, the European Union Inventor Award for his work on USB. He holds over 70 U.S. patents, in interna both international as well as U.S. patents, and several are pending. So he's a real rock star who has pushed technology for the good of man, and he hasn't really made a lot of money for it. So it's, it was really fun to read about his life. A.J.V. Bott, the co-inventor of the USB port and many other devices, within our computer. Hope you are paying attention because coming up, your chance to show us that you've been paying attention by playing the pop quiz. Coming up on Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, Southwest of DC on 1077 FM HD2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. 
If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, Jim Ross, Featuring Mr. Big Voice. With musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band. And your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. Ah, uh, yes, thank you, thank you. Oh, I just love this virtual audience. They're so well behaved. And They're I don't have to on pick the plaza up any popcorn. Today. Much, much better. Now, this is not simply a radio show. This is a classroom of the airwaves. Yes. And we want to test whether you know what, what I've been talking about on the show. And we do that with a pop quiz. If you get the right answer to the pop quiz, you'll get two tickets to fine dining at one of the Stratford Uni- University uh, dining rooms as soon as they open after the pandemic. Now, earlier in the show, I was talking about Andrew Bott. He, of course, is the... Uh, developer of USB technology as well as many other technologies that that we use in our computers. What motivated A.J. Bott to develop the USB port? If you know the answer to today's question, now's your chance to pick up the phone, give us a call. If you're dialing from west of the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. Standing next to a snow-covered pile of oyster shells east of Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you've dropped your USB drive in a pile of leaves in Canada, call us on the wildcard line, 877-936-9333. Anyone else, anywhere else may call us on the international line. Recently disinfected and without hanging chad, 877-936-39333. Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Schertz. Yes, let's talk about how police are using facial recognition to identify protesters. Now, past June, this past June, there was a peaceful protest that sort of erupted into some violence. And one of the protesters punched a police officer in the face before he ran away. Now, according to court documents, the police found the protester by mining the cell phone footage from the pro- of the protest that was posted on Twitter. What they did, they went to the Twitter video feeds and they mined all of that data and then they put it into a software package called the National Capital Regional Facial Recognition Investigative Lead System. That's really a mouthful. Yeah, really. They put it through the system and they just crunched it and they located the guy. They located the guy using facial recognition and they... um, and they basically went out. It, it, took them, uh, it took them less than a week to locate the guy, and they ended up arresting him. Uh, Philadelphia police used the same system to track down protesters that were burning police cars. This software, the police say that if it's a peaceful uh, protest, they don't use the software. They only do it if it erupts in violence. Now, according to, uh, to police... Uh, they have about 1.4 million images in that database, and these are derived from mugshots that have been supplied by partnering agencies. To date, 
This system has been used 12,000 times since 2019 and has generated over 2,600 leads. So we're going to have to decide, do we like facial recognition or not? Because it is just here to stay, and it's being used widely by nearly everyone. All right. We've got somebody who would like to play the game. Let's go to line one. This is MC calling us from Silver Spring. Good morning, MC. How are you? Good morning, Jim. Good morning, Doc. Doc, good morning. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Early in the show, I talked about A.J. Bott. Of course, he developed the USB technology as well as other technologies. What was the motivator for developing USB? Uh, he was motivated to try to find a way that the printers can use the plug-and-play system. Close enough. Very good. Excellent. Close Very enough. Good. Very good. All right. Uh, thanks a lot for calling, M uh, MC. Hang on a second. We're going to put you back on hold. Andrew will take your information, and we will get back to you with that prize shortly. It's uh, Tech Talk Radio that you're listening to on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2. And southwest of D.C. now, you can hear us on 107.7 FM point HD2. In Loudoun County, it's 104.5 FM. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Observations from the bunker. There you go. Whoa. Today I'm going to talk about Satya. Satya Nadella. He, of course, is the CEO of Microsoft, and Nadella actually turned that company around after Steve Ballmer left, and he totally changed the culture. And so somebody asked him, how did you change the culture at Microsoft? How did you make that happen? And so he had four things that he, four things that he does that he's giving advice on. Number one, don't be a know-it-all, be a learn-it-all. Ah. He said, there's a problem when somebody becomes an expert. They think they know it all and they stop learning. What you want to do is be a learn-it-all, where you uh, constantly try to challenge yourself to learn things that you don't know. 
and you and you develop a growth mindset where you try new things and you don't fear failure. This is this is an idea that that came from Carol Dweck, who who talks a lot about the growth mindset. And Adela said that is the number one thing you've got to have in a tech company. Number two, he tries to bring clarity, not confusion. So if you have a meeting, everybody knows what the purpose of the meeting is. If you assign roles on a team project, everybody knows what their role is, what they have to do, what the purpose of the project is. So you've got clarity as to what you need to do and when you need to do it. Then you want to create energy. And he creates energy by bringing people together and creating chemistry. He said, look, you could take a team of people that work together and have chemistry, and they could be lower performers, yet as a team, they're extremely successful. Or you could have another kind of team where you've got a bunch of high performers that don't get along and no chemistry. He says the team with chemistry will always outperform the team with chemistry, and that's how you bring energy. It's sort of like the old saying, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Mm -hmm. And finally, he creates a culture of no excuses. You know, you have to have constraints. You operate within those constraints, but you still have to deliver, and he doesn't accept excuses. So if you have a growth mindset, if you're a learn-it-all, not a be-it-all, if you bring clarity, if you create energy through synergy of the team, and if you don't accept excuses, you can turn the company around. So I thought that was pretty good advice from Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft. So let's talk about the uh, ISS astronauts. They they were able to vote from space. You know, I had no idea. You know, they NASA actually set up a voting booth up there, so they have privacy. So they go into their little voting booth there in the International Space Station, and they do their do their voting. It turned out that they've been voting at the International Space Station since 1977, when Congress passed a law allowing astronaut David Wolf to become the first American to cast a vote from space. So they go into this little voting booth, they fill out their ballots, the data is encrypted because they don't want the other astronauts to know how they voted. Mm -hmm. And it's uploaded to ISS's computer. From there, it's the encrypted vote is sent to NASA's tracking and relay, data relay satellites. Then it goes to the White Sands Complex in New Mexico it doesn't stop there. Then it goes down to the space, the Johnson Space Center in Texas. This is a long path. Yeah. Then finally, the Johnson Space Center sends the data electronically to the county clerk where that particular astronaut lives. Interesting. And it's uh, and it's done every every time there's voting. You know, I had no idea they did that. I'm glad they I'm glad they could do that. I wonder if there was any Russian interference aboard the uh, the space station. You know, that's where you could have Russian because you had Russian cosmonauts up there with them. Could they could that's they could kick them out of the booth? That's where you really have Russian interference. <laughs> they can block know, the way the into the booth. Maybe the Russians are trying to influence their vote. Hmm. <laughs> Comrade. I never know about that. You don't. I'm, you know, Chinese control, this has been a big discussion. Does the Chinese really control companies? Now, Alibaba is like the is like the Amazon of China. It's uh it's it's huge. It has just taken over. It's an it's an online um, sales tool just like Amazon. It's huge. And they were coming out with an IPO 
that was, and they were coming out to an IPO in China, in, in Beijing and also Shanghai, and this IPO was going to net them about $37 billion. And, uh, you know, and so they talked to the, uh, to the owner, uh, the CEO, Jack Ma, is the, CE, is the CEO. They talked to Jack Ma and they said, look, you know, before you can put this thing out as an IPO, you're going to have to live with our constraints. We're going to tell you you can only grow so fast. We're going to put controls on you because you're just getting way too powerful. And Jack Ma told the government officials to just stick it to them, <laughs> to stuff it. And uh, and they, uh, he thought he had the power to prevail, and they canceled the IPO. They canceled the IPO. And so now the question is, is he going to go back and kowtow to the Chinese government, or will he take the IPO maybe to the U.S. markets or to the European markets? But control of companies within China is a real deal, and they, they exercise power whenever they want to. So I think that is something that we just got to live with in, this, in the current, current climate. Uh, Android is 13 years old. Did you know that, Jim? I did not know that, no. Yeah, November 5th, 2007, uh, Google announced the Open Handset Alliance. Now, they revealed this after there was this, all this speculation that there would be a Google phone. They called it the G phone. Mm -hmm. And there were rumors swirling around that Google was going to go in direct head-to-head -head competition with the iPhone and create their own Google phone and try to out-hardware Apple. But what Google did instead, they made the Android operating system open source, and they allowed other companies to use it. So they formed the Open Handset Alliance, and that included companies like Motorola, Qualcomm, HTC, T-Mobile. They were all on board to help deliver the hardware and the partnerships to bring this platform alive. And that turned out to be an extremely um, good approach because now, according to Google, Android phones own 70% of the worldwide smartphone market. And, uh, and Google has basically made it open source and made it available to all. Now, you might ask, well, what, what does Google get out of it? What does Google get out of it? Yeah, well, thank you, Jim. <laughs> it turns out because they own the Android operating system, they control how ads and web browsers appear on those smartphones. So it gives them an edge when it comes to digital marketing. Mm -hmm. And digital marketing is where Google makes all of its money. So they wanted to own that platform. That's also why they created the, uh, the Edge browser, or the, uh, the Chrome browser for your, your PC, because they want to control whatever you're looking at on the internet so they can control the digital advertising that you see. So they, they put the Chrome browser and made it available free of charge for all the, the platforms, and it's really a, an excellent browser and the Android operating system because they're always focused on advertising. Now, let's talk about coronavirus. There's a big update. I just learned about this yeah, the other this day. Yeah, this is crazy. We have a mink permutation, and it happened in Denmark. Yeah. It turned, I had no idea that Denmark actually provides the bulk of the mink to the worldwide market. Didn't know that either. 
Denmark's entire population of minks, it's like 15 million minks mm. live in farms in Denmark. Now, what happened, what happened was, and they've got a lot of workers that work on the mink farms. So there were workers who had coronavirus on the mink farms. They gave coronavirus to the minks. So it went human to animal transfer. So then the minks had coronavirus. But within the mink, the coronavirus mutated. And then the mutated virus went back and infected more individuals. Ugh. You see? So now we've got a, the first major mutation of coronavirus. And they, it, they found more than a dozen people in Denmark that have been infected with this mutated virus. And uh, it turns out that half of the people who have coronavirus in in Denmark, and they have 783 cases of documented cases of coronavirus. Half of them work on mink farms, so this is a huge problem. Well, so now, what Denmark is going to do? I mean, they actually export 15 million to 17 million minks every year uh, in Denmark. It's a huge business. They're going to have to basically call these minks, kill off their minks. It's basically going to cost them $785 million to basically kill all of these minks so that this coronavirus mutation, mutation goes does away. not spread. Uh, now, I mean, this is actually a big problem because this the, the vaccines that are being created will not work against this particular mutation. And then we're right back where we started. Right back where we started from. So they're trying to uh, they're trying to contain it. So I mean, they're doing the right thing. It's it's and I, interesting. I, I hope the other countries come in and help them with that, but because they're doing the right thing, they're trying to contain it so it doesn't leave leave Denmark. It's then at the same time, it's interesting. The WHO only... is still trying to investigate how the original coronavirus got started, uh -huh. and you know, of course, it was near an animal market in Wuhan, and there was a a a, a, a virus uh, research facility that was very near that that market. But it turns out the Chinese will still not let WHO personnel, WHO personnel, into China to conduct an independent probe. So in China, the cover-up still continues. So but at least those in Denmark are doing the right thing. It's interesting that there's only 783 human cases in Denmark. I mean, that's, yeah. that's pretty amazing. And and so why, why the mink with all of the human-to-animal uh, contact that's in this world? Why did this happen with mink? I don't know. It's it's like the mystery of the coronavirus. It's I crazy. have no idea. I don't know. It's crazy. Well, I'm glad they're they're getting a handle on it. Yeah, that is something pretty interesting. Now, ransomware is uh, you know whenever you got a scare and we need a lot of healthcare companies, of course, these guys always try to make money wherever they can. <laughs> and the ransomware folks have been attacking the U.S. healthcare system mm -hmm. because they figure. If they can lock up all the records at a hospital and shut them down, the hospital is going to have to pay them off to get back online. So on October 28th of 2020, the FBI and other federal agencies warned that cyber criminals were unleashing ransomware attacks against the U.S. healthcare system. Apparently, had the they had intelligence that they were tracking these guys. They said they have credible information of an imminent cybercrime threat. Now, independent experts have already have, have have indicated that already at least five hospitals have been infected with malware so far. 
and potentially hundreds more will be. Now, the offensive action is managed by a Russian-speaking criminal gang. It's the same gang that really worked on the U.S. presidential election. Although there are no indications that there's any interest other than pure profit here. Uh-huh. Cyber criminals begin launching their attacks using a strain of ransomware known as Ryuk, R-Y-U-K, which was seeded through a network of zombie computers <laughs> called TrickBots <laughs> that Microsoft has been trying to shut down, by the way, all through October. There's millions of these zombie computers, and Microsoft is, is trying to shut down them all. The U.S. Cyber Command reportedly has taken actions against TrickBot. Now, Microsoft had considerable success at knocking uh, its knocking out his command and control servers, uh, the criminals have still found ways to spread riot. The group is demanding ransom well above $10 million per target. So they go into a hospital, they encrypt all the files, and they say, we're not going to give you your files back unless you pay us $10 million. That's And it costs more than $10 million to actually redo all the IT. And so... They're hoping that the hospitals just pay them off, although the um, U.S. government says don't pay them off. That just stimulates more. A total of 59 healthcare providers have been impacted by ransomware since 2020, and they've dis- disrupted patient care in over 510 facilities. Now, if you want to protect against ransomware, it's really easy. You got to keep your sec- security patches updated. You have to use two-factor authentication. Whenever you set up any remote access, you've got to backup every day. You've got to keep selected backup data offline so it can't be touched by ransomware. And you got to train your employees from clicking on every link in every email that comes through. Mm-hmm. If you do all those things, you can protect yourself against cybercrime. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. And we'd like you to go to the Stratford University website, www.stratford.edu, and check out our programs there and tell them that you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.